Hey, welcome into Downtown the Podcast. Episode 55, coming to you from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. I'm Rich Kimball, here with Carrie Haskell. We are brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And by the good folks at Pineland Farms Dairy, Maine Cows, Maine Milk, Maine Cheese, Pineland Farms. Two authors joining uh, joining us this week, better known for their work on the screen, both small and large, as we'll talk with Adam Savage, longtime host of Mythbusters, and William Sanderson, veteran character actor who's been getting it done for more than four decades in both film and television. Both have brand new books out and other projects in the works, too. Let's get things underway by talking with Adam Savage, who hosted every single episode of Mythbusters, of course, for some 14 seasons. Got a great new website, a new television show coming up as well. But we talked mostly about his brand new book, Every Tool's a Hammer, Life is What You Make It. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that lovely introduction. The book is so entertaining and interesting and useful. And I I love a phrase early in the book. You say, a healthy obsession is the gravity that binds us to the things we make. Yeah, I, I... It's, I was looking for some physics analogies that would help me think about and process and talk about making, and that one really hit me hard when I wrote it down, the idea of physics being a, a, a universal force that draws us towards making. But it's so true, and it's, it, it's one of the things I'm finding is resonating with a lot of, of makers of every stripe when they read this. And when it comes to making, often the hardest part is getting started, and that's one of the things that you focus on. You've got to jump into it and then worry about things as you go along. Absolutely. There's a famous quote from Goethe where he says that uh, boldness has genius power and magic in it, and then whatever you can think you want to begin, you should begin it today. And I've written this book as a permission slip for everyone who reads it to do exactly that, because... It's never, there's never going to be a perfect workbench, a perfect outline for the thing you want to start writing. The trick is just to get started and try and build momentum towards the goal that you have. I also was very excited to see a chapter on lists as a compulsive list maker. I love that you said <laughs> that lists are not uh, external to the creative process. Can you explain that? Well, I, look, whether you're writing them down or you're keeping them in your head, every everything that we decide to execute on includes a list. Uh, for me, I can keep a short list in my head, and I say short, I mean like four, four items or so. But as soon as it gets bigger than that, in order for me to understand what I'm working on, I need to physically write it down. And it has given me so much expansive ability to tackle larger and larger projects that I figured an entire chapter on list making and a second chapter on the checkboxes at the left <laughs> side of every list item was totally necessary. And I agree completely. I, I love that part of it. Uh, an important part of the book, too, is being able to step back and witness how you work. Well, there's a Buddhist tenet about watching the watcher. And that ability to watch yourself while you work, to notice your proclivities, um, one, to improve yourself, to improve your working process, to see the obstacles you hit on a regular basis. But two, to refine your working environment and your process to better suit you. So I'm always, when I'm in my shop working, I'm always taking note of the paths I trod to get tools that I want, 
of the ways in which how I place tools might help or hinder my working process. And that watching the watcher has made, has, has really, really radically improved my ability to adjust my workspace to fit my needs. Now, another thing that you've talked about in the book a lot is, uh, or, or the usefulness of deadlines in sort of forcing the creative process for you. And even those self-imposed deadlines, is that become easier for you to create those, the, the deadlines for yourself? Or is that still something you, you work on? Uh, no. So I've, I've been lucky enough to do what I do both professionally and personally and have a lot of crossover in the types of projects I do in both of those realms. But a lot of people might have a job that's not necessarily feeding them creatively, but they go and they, they want to do things at home. They want to write or make clothes or, or play the guitar uh, or write a song. Uh, and when you don't have a, a, a parameter on the creation that you're doing, it can just keep on extending out into the distance. And I've, I've had projects that took me more than a decade and a half to finish because I didn't have a point at which I needed them finished by. Uh, and as long as I don't have that, I just sit there belaboring every single decision. Well, could I get a little better part? Could I make this out of aluminum? So what, you know, I start obsessing over every tiny detail. And when I impose, so one of those costumes was Kane's spacesuit from the movie Alien mm. that I spent 14 years replicating. And finally, in 2014, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to say I have this ready for Comic-Con in July in San Diego, and that will get me to finish it. And uh, another phrase I use in the book is uh, deadlines lop branches off your decision tree. <laughs> they force you to look at every step you're taking and ask is this directed towards the essence of the project or is it ancillary? And that is a phenomenal question to keep asking yourself. We're talking with Adam Savage on Downtown. His new book is called Every Tool's a Hammer. I love the section, uh, I think it was with uh, Andrew Stanton from Pixar, talking about the fact that you need to give yourself permission to make mistakes and, and what that can do for the culture. Well, and not only uh, Andy's, the interview I did with Andy is so wonderful because he's so inculcated in the ethos of the way that Pixar makes movies in which he describes that they've institutionalized the process of changing the path of the film when it becomes necessary. So they write a movie at the beginning and they start making it, but the movie changes as they make it. They find new roads, new narrative lines, new characters, new ways of telling the story. And the trick is to follow that. Those aren't mistakes. That is the creative process taking you on a journey. We don't, when we set out to paint a painting or make a film, we conceive of, a, of an idea, but what we execute is never that idea. That's actually why we do it. If we knew what we were making, it wouldn't be interesting. The journey that we go on is the whole point. And the thing that's wonderful about listening to Andy talk about Pixar's process is that they've built that and baked that process right into the whole company. Uh, they, they'll look at a film three-quarters of the way done and realize radical changes are needed, and then they will implement those changes in service of, of the plot. That's, if we called them something other than mistakes, it would be very good for us culturally because they're just iterations of creativity. It, building on that, that, the culture that you're talking about, one of the points you make in, early in the book is that humans are sort of built to collaborate but that seems a little counter to the great American myth of the self-made man. Pixar has done a great job of encouraging that collaboration, but 
how do you see the other people getting past that? I, I, I totally, you're absolutely right. America has the myth of the, of the singular creator of the genius at the center. Um, and I, I have met some of these. I have been lucky enough to meet and spend time with a few of those, but I'm here to tell you that they're not one in a million. They're one in a hundred million. These are very rare individuals. Uh, the rest of us, all the rest of us, which is all of humanity, we have to collaborate. We work within a community. And I, I spent a long time in my early, in my late teens and my early 20s kind of waiting to figure out how I might end up being a singular creator. And it's just a waste of freaking time and energy. <laughs> I have learned over the years that I'm a born collaborator and I love wheeling people into my projects. I love jumping into other people's projects. Adam, you have opened up my eyes to glue. I know so much more about it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fu I, the, the entire chapter I wrote on glue was a really funny one because I went back and forth. I was like, am I going to talk about the physics of glue? I got to call a chemist. And then I thought, well, I, I don't know if I want to do a comprehensive thing on glue because there's some glues I positively hate. And that's when I realized, oh, you know what? I'm just going to tell you the eight glues that I use and why. And if that helps, that's great. If it doesn't, you may disagree with some of the things I say. That's also great. Yeah, I wish I'd read that about, you know, 20, 25 years ago. <laughs> Stuff around my house would have been glued a lot better. <laughs> now, using the old, the old cliche of being stranded on a desert island, if you're stranded on a desert island, what's the one glue you absolutely have to have? Oh, that's a really good question. Okay, presuming that I could store it in perpetuity uh, and that it would always be useful to me on a deserted island, it might be epoxy um, for the specific reason that I could use it both to glue things together with great strength, but I could mm -hmm. also use it along with the plant materials on the deserted island to make really rigid and uh, rigid and larger structures using the epoxy. I like that a lot. Uh, the last section of the book I found especially valuable as someone who's not particularly handy, but I think this can apply as much of the book can to everything we do in life, whatever we're building. And it's the idea of organization, see everything, reach everything. Well, and again, this is a deeply personal book and this is, I'm, I'm explicating the process that has worked for me. And everybody has a different process. And some people may prefer to work out of a messier shop than I do, and that's totally valid. Uh, but for me, uh, my shop being clean and the tools that I need being within my reach is really paramount for me. And the reason is, is because I like to work intuitively. So if I'm at the bench and I've got a thing that I'm sanding, but I need to cut something in it, I want a blade within arm's length of me. And that way I don't have to stop and think, okay, where are the blades? Let me go over to the drawer of the blades and get a blade and put it in a handle and put it in a thing and head back to my workbench. When I do that, I lose my momentum. So for me, all the creative stuff that I do has, again, this is another one of the physics analogies, has a momentum to it. And my goal is to keep that hoop spinning by hitting it with a stick. And for me, the stick is all of the tools I need within arm's reach, without having to move anything out of the way. And I call that philosophy first-order retrievability. Along with the new book, you've got a new series that's uh, coming soon. Can you tell us a little bit about Savage Builds? 
Oh, yeah. Uh, it comes up on uh, June 12th on the Science Channel right after BattleBots, one of my favorite shows in the world. Uh, and Savage Builds is an absurd engineering show. with uh, I, I have a different collaborator or collaborators in every single episode. Everyone from the queen of crappy robots, Simone Yatch, and my friend Laura Kampf, to uh, Jet Propulsion Labs' Adam Steltzner. Gary Oldman shows up in one of the episodes. And in the very first episode, I... Uh, along with the Colorado School of Mines Engineering School, uh, constructed a suit of Iron Man armor out of 3D-printed titanium. (laughs) I love it. I can't wait. Oh, my gosh. We had so much fun. Uh, We built a working ZF-1 from the fifth element. We replicated a a World War II munition called a Panjandrum. Tori Belice, my old co-host from Mythbusters, came on an episode, and we enjoyed a food fight with a minimum distance of 100 feet, <laughs> things got messy. <laughs> well, you have inspired a couple of generations of people to go out there and, and get creative. Uh, how often do you run into someone in your travels who said, I know you told us not to try this at home, but I, I did it anyway? <laughs> uh, that, that precise phrase gets spoken to me probably two or three times a day, every <laughs> single day of my waking life. Um, it is... I, I am very gratified that I have not yet ever seen a news story in which someone harmed themselves <laughs> doing something that we did on Mythbusters. Uh, so I, I, I like to believe that education was the only result, not injury. The book is terrific. It's called Every Tool's a Hammer. Life is what you make it. If you're listening to us, for some reason, out in the Seattle area, go see Adam tonight at 7 o'clock at Lake Forest Park. Adam, it's been a, a real treat. Thank you so much for joining us. We wish you great success with the book and with the new show as well. Thank you so much. You guys have a wonderful day. Adam Savage with us here talking about his new book, Every Tool's a Hammer. And Adam, was he was great. He was, uh, well, he was just what you would expect him to be. That was a joy to have him on the show and to talk about talk about his career, his philosophy. Everything in the book is uh, is interesting. He brings so much enthusiasm to the table. And I love his, uh, when talking about just finding out that he's, he's a born collaborator. That's where he works best. Look forward to the new show as well, Savage Builds. But read the book. I think you'll like it a lot. Every Tool's a Hammer. Life is what you make it, Adam Savage. All right, when we come back, we'll talk with the author of a brand new memoir about the life of a character actor, William Sanderson. You know him as J.F. Sebastian in Blade Runner. Larry, one of the three brothers on Newhart. And, of course, E.B. Farnham from Deadwood in the soon-to-be-released Deadwood the movie. But he's had quite an interesting life, from growing up in Memphis to his time in New York as a stage actor on to California and television and movies. Uh, a very open and honest book about some of his struggles along the way, too. And we'll talk with Bill Sanderson about that after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Since 2005, Pineland Farms Dairy has been making the finest cheese in Maine. No question about it. Cheddar, Monterey Jack, Pepper Jack, Baby Swiss, Feta, and those oh-so-good cheese curds are made from all natural milk right here in Maine. 
You can find Pineland Farms cheese at Hannaford Supermarkets, Shaw's, Whole Foods, and other great shops throughout Maine and New England. Also, check them out online as well at pinelandfarmsdairy.com. It is the preferred snack of the downtown program. Maine cows, Maine milk, Maine cheese, Pineland Farms. Our next guest on the podcast appeared in every single episode of the acclaimed series Deadwood. He and Ian McShane, the only two cast members to appear in every single episode. He's also back in the upcoming Deadwood movie on HBO. And he's got a brand new book out called Yes, I'm That Guy, Rough and Tumble Life of a Character Actor. Always a pleasure for us to get together with our friend William Sanderson. Bill, thanks for coming back with us. Thank you very much. Love this book so much. Um, I I told Sharon, I I picked it up, and I just read the whole thing at once. I couldn't put it down. It was such a tremendous read. Well, I I don't know what to say, except I'm I'm surprised, uh, because I'm always looking at the worst scenario. But uh, I'm hopeful, and I'm grateful. Thanks again. Well, we loved it. And uh, we've asked you this before when you were talking with us about about the book and, and your reasons for it. Part of this is, as you point out, uh, to have a legacy of sorts, to make sure that uh, even though your work in television and film will be out there for a long time, boy, when you put it in a book, uh, it's there forever, but also to maybe correct any perceptions that might be out there uh, of you and what you're like and to let the world know that you, you've got, you're an educated man, you've got a law degree, you know your stuff. Well... Yes, and uh, but I don't want to leave out vanity. I keep thinking as I'm asked questions, why'd you write it? But I hope uh, maybe to change some opinions. Some someone said, look at the roles he played. As I may have said to you before, I played a lot of idiot types, but I don't think that that's uh, some total. So thank you. Well, let's let's talk about your early years growing up uh, in. What was clearly a challenging situation? Your mother sounds like an absolutely incredible, strong woman. Yeah, yes, she was, and uh, did everything for my brother and me, and kind of put her life, her own dreams on hold to for the family. But uh, I want to be careful here <laughs> that uh, I did all right, and uh, that's largely because of. Uh, of her, you know. But the father did a lot of disciplining and telling me, trying to make me do the right thing. He just, they didn't quite, uh, had a little hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. But I, I love this book I read about uh, Santana, and he said, don't cry at your own movie. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, so, you found... You know, I'm, I'm, I ended up pretty good. You pretty sure happy. did. Well, you, you found some trouble in those early years uh, in, in junior high, and along the way, uh, but you also show an amazing tendency in your life to to get out of trouble when things perhaps could have gone a lot worse for you. Oh, you're absolutely right. Uh, second chances, second uh, opportunities, and I just read something about that the creator of Deadwood said about second chances. So it made me feel good. It came out in the New Yorker, an article, and he has dementia now so but that mm. made me feel good when somebody intelligent says the same thing but the second you know the the juvenile 
uh, offense. I didn't think that would last, but when I went in the Army, they, I, they had to give me a waiver. So I got, I thought, man, everybody's going in the service. It's a six-year obligation. So, But uh, I'm just rambling on and instead of talking coherently. But I'd had, I did get a lot of second chances, but I acted like an adolescent even when I got out to Hollywood. But part of that was getting that 15 minutes uh, Warholian. Warhol <laughs> talks about fame, and you, suddenly people like you better for some reason, and I fell for it. We're talking with William Sanderson here on Downtown. You've chatted with us a little bit about the influence of Elvis growing up in Memphis when you did. There are some incredible Elvis stories in the book from seeing him in the middle of Bob Neal's record store. Um, could you share a little bit of the story? And we still want people to go read the book, but a little bit of what happened. You actually visited Graceland with Elvis yep. there with uh, one of the guys who owned uh, Lansky's clothing store where Elvis got all his duds. Yeah, yeah. People, a few people have called, and thank goodness I didn't tell them the stories. I said, well, I'm not going to give them that story. I'll put it down, but I don't know how well I tell That one... I don't want to give it away completely. There's, which one you think, Bob Neal record shop or the when he was playing the piano in his house? Well, that was a pretty good. Actually, I think my favorite though is uh, Elvis and, and you, because you just sort of inserted yourself into the Memphis mafia, knowing where he was going to be. It was at the amusement park when you you ran into yeah. him a little too hard doing the bumper cars. Oh yeah, I had a friend who was a friend of the. Blackwood Brothers, a gospel group, and the Blackwood Brothers always knew what night Elvis was going to the Memphian and rent the theater or amusement park. He would go out at midnight. So I did uh, slide in a side gate, and it was a crowd of mostly his friends and stuff. So Elvis had his buddies on one team, and uh, I jumped in. They call them Dodger bumper cars, and like an idiot, I was hitting head-on with the car, and he said, man, I, I told you not to do that. And, I, boy, I just apologized like crazy. I'm sorry. He, and he almost immediately, he said, oh, it's okay. I just hate to keep replacing the motors. <laughs> but if he was anything, he was always uh, pleasant to the fans. And I called myself a stalker later, or I should say groupie now. But I... Yeah, I never. Um, I I drive down to Mississippi. Most people didn't know he had a ranch down there, and I might stand outside the gate just waiting for him to drive out. <laughs> Priscilla, I was a little bit obsessed, but got to see him from grade school and junior high and high school. So not when he became older, the caricature I mm. call it of Elvis. But he was a very generous person and. Uh, Sparked a dream, as Keith Richards said, he sparked a dream. Yeah, I mean, in the book, you're t you talk about the the concerts that you got to see. You know, so growing up in the same city, you saw Elvis three times before you were 13 years old. Well, the first Perform. time, the first time I was 11 or 12, uh, probably sixth grade, and that was an outdoor concert. We call it like a Hollywood Bowl, only it, this one would hold 5,000. So he he played there, and uh, I started around dusk, 
and Sam Phillips was in the audience, and I was on the front row, I believe. But then the next year was when I, hanging around Lansky Brothers on Beale Street where he bought his clothes, and Mr. Lansky, am I making it too long? No, no not no. at all. Mr. Lansky knew that uh, his son was in my mother's third grade class, so I guess that gave me a little... So I'm 13, I think, in the seventh grade. He said, you want to ride out to the house, and uh, I have to deliver some clothes. So uh, I did. And Sharon said, don't tell the whole story, but I did get to go in the house, and uh, I'll just say he was playing the piano, and in the book I say the songs that I can remember, and his buddies were around the piano, but I, I thought it was a dream. I'm sitting there, a big white piano with gold trim and white television. And within the next, I'll, I'll just cut the story off, but I look, his mother came down to listen to it, leaning against the doorway. But within a couple of years or so, he was the highest paid entertainer in the world. And I thought, God, <laughs> you know, so... And and he was a, lot a big of fun. A lot of fun. Then got to play. Airdrie got out of the army, and I, I got older, and it, it got to play a little football with him on Sunday right. night. <laughs> Until it got so popular that I couldn't even grab a jersey. <laughs> well, and he was an influence on you as he was millions of young people in terms of fashion. Have you have you ever felt better about yourself than you did when you were sporting that turquoise rock and roll shirt? Oh, thank you for remembering that. I think my mother bought that. But uh, uh, rock and roll, we like, we kind of claim that it started there. A lot of people will argue with you, but and, uh, and the great black artists, and uh, I got to see them uh, live. And uh, you know, there was Jerry Lee Lewis, whom I saw, Johnny Cash. Uh, uh, I didn't see Roy Orbison. He recorded there. No, I like that shirt, and I still like <laughs> turquoise, but I, I was probably wanting wanting to be a rock and roller. <laughs> William Sanderson's book is called Yes, I'm That Guy, The Rough and Tumble Life of a Character Actor. You went to law school, wandered into a theater class, and, and that was a life-changing event for you in many ways. Yeah, yeah, it sure was gradual, but it was fun, and... Um, I, I always wanted to get over shyness, whatever I ended up doing. So uh, I think I discovered at a local theater with a good teacher, you can still be shy and act. So you just put the right stuff in your head. It, it took a while. You know, the apprenticeship in New York was probably the biggest help with the stage plays and things. But uh, law school, yeah, I should tell them I never took the bar exam, but. Uh, made some good friends, and to this day, and uh, I don't regret going to law school. I, I read once about Sinatra, whom I love to hear sing, but he said he got self-conscious when he went into groups of intelligent, educated, or you know what I'm saying. And mm. I, I don't. Right. Right. Now you, you know, do I, the... might, I, 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 I would be for some other reason, but not because they <laughs> me with their intellect. Well, when you moved to New York, uh, that was a, an interesting experience. You were attending bar, you were acting, and you were getting in some more trouble. And as you point out, you're so honest and, and open about it uh, throughout the course of the book. Uh, you you prove time and again that Bill Sanderson and alcohol makes for a very combustible mix. 
Yeah, and I was fearful that everybody thinks they were wild or outlaw type, but bartending, you're pretty close to it and mm. it's free, but I, I had a real good probation officer, and um, that helped, but it, I had some close calls by being arrested and uh, uh, doing dumb things, but those second chances, um, I, uh, I uh, yes, that that article about, well, I better be quiet about that. I, I don't know how much to talk about it, but to try to get somebody to read the book, the arrests were in double figures. But the biggest one, the scariest one, was out in California was a shakedown. And actually, more right. than one shakedown. I only can imagine what these stars do and happened. And I, I said to my buddy one time, well, the Elvis didn't let that happen. And my buddy said... He paid them off. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know, but, you know, you just become a target sometimes. But, you know, as much my fault as anybody else's, I guess. But how many, the second chance to get out, you know, I was fired a lot of times, and I've realized it goes on in business, and then rehired by the same people. Right. It's weird. Well, you made your way west uh, into the movies, uh, getting some help from Joseph Wambaugh along the way, and then a really wonderful experience, it sounds like, working on Coal Miner's Daughter with, with Sissy Spacek and a guy that you came to work with quite a bit and an equally volatile character uh, in the book, Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, thank you for mentioning both of them. I survived six projects with Tommy, and they asked me to do a seven, but I couldn't get out of another job. Uh, but Sissy Spacek, a class act, I... I started to get a little success, you know, and I would see how she handled a compliment. Somebody would say something nice to her. She'd just say, thank you. And it's not that easy. I, I've seen Bob Newhart talk about it. He's such a friend of Carson's. And he said, somebody says, you did a good job. And you say, oh, no, I, I dropped the ball or I didn't do that well. Newhart says you get two compliments because they come back and say, oh, yeah, you were really good, <laughs> instead of just saying thank you. Did any of that make any sense? It sure did, yeah. Uh, but, uh, I, I, mean, was, I wanted to say I was very pleased because he's one of my favorite actors of all time, and, and you're the second person uh, that will tell us good things about James Garner here on the show. The other was Julie Andrews, who absolutely loved working with him back in the Americanization of Emily, and uh, he is, as you put it in the book, a real mensch. Oh, oh. Couldn't say enough, you know. And another sad thing, uh, they rebooted or they did uh, one season of Maverick. Mm. And so I tell in the book about how nice he was to explain what you have to do when they reverse the the camera angle. Mm. And uh, he said that we're going to use you when they bring the show back next season. And they didn't bring it back because of some argument between... Mr. Garner and the producer, but he was also nice to my son at a Raiders football game. Uh, but I think he's known as a, a classic guy himself. Uh, also, now we've talked uh, with you before about the new heart experience, but I thought it was interesting that uh, you know nobody is nobody is one dimensional, and Bob Newhart certainly uh, was a guy who cared about the people he worked with. But you also point out in the book he was pretty protective uh, of what he had, wanted to make sure that. People didn't cash in on those roles that he felt his show provided. Well, that and 
leave his show. I've done a lot of thinking. If you give somebody a job, and first chance they get, they want to go somewhere else. That's he gave. He figures, I think, that he gave you the shot. So he, his manager was the head of MTM, so he had great power, like a Jackie Gleason or somebody. And but uh, I learned a lot from him, and uh, I liked the way he treated the crew. They had done his old show on the same stage, so he knew them by first name. And but. Uh, He's uh, and he still, uh, you know, he still works. Sometimes I think he still does shows. And he's eighty-nine. Uh, so I, I was lucky to be a small part of that show with my brother Daryl, <laughs> brother Darryl, Tony Peppenfuss, and John Volstead. I also, you made uh, both Carrie and I really want to see uh, a movie that uh, you did not that long ago. That sounds like a wonderful experience. Can you share a little bit about Stanley's gig? Oh, my goodness. Uh, the script was wonderful. And about a guy who dreams of, he's a ukulele player, and he dreams of uh, playing on a cruise ship. In real life, is based on a true story. In real life, the guy was uh, drunk, and he he found salvation by working in a, uh old folks' home. But... We had a first-time director, and they chose to do it with a low budget. Someone said he, the director was offered a lot of money to sell it to Universal, and they said they'd give it to Robin Williams. But it uh, it uh, didn't do much. They didn't promote it. I think Stars played it. Uh, it had uh, Marla Gibbs, who's a mm. wonderful singer. And an actor named Stephen Tobolowski. Has he been on your show? He, he, he's a great friend of our show. He's been on many times. Yes, he was on there and in there and and Faye Dunaway. Which when right. I got this independent film, I thought, hmm, that's that's a good name to drop. <laughs> but uh, I tell a story in there about her. I hope people will read the book. She's a diva, and I keep my mouth shut around her. <laughs> but very professional as well, as, as you point out. Read the book to get the story. Uh, let's, let's talk about Eustace Bailey Farnham. You say it's the, the high point of your acting career. What did that opportunity to be in Deadwood uh, do for you? Well, besides buy a second home back here, modest <laughs> home in Pennsylvania, and, uh, uh, well, uh, it... Uh, it, it was just great writing, David Milch, which I keep mentioning. I'm so sorry that he's ill now. But everybody on the show was lucky enough to go on to another show. And uh, I know it's not everybody's uh, thing because it uh, has some rough language. But it, it was based on a real my character, the mm. mayor based on a real character. But he decided to make him some... David decided to make my character something of a buffoon, but that's all right. That's all right. I think it's why I got the next job on True Blood, uh, because had I not done Deadwood, I might not have gotten that one. So, uh, But I don't know how to describe it without sounding like I'm bragging. I got to be in every show, and there's only two of us for some reason, they, uh, Ian McShane and I. And that's kind of lucky for a character actor. Well, and to I deliver like walk on, I felt like a walk. <laughs> and to deliver some incredible monologues. 
Yeah, he seemed to give everybody one, and uh, I put some of them down in the book. I hope it's legal that he gave and that we're in some articles. But his uh, incredible. Uh, I've never read anything an act somebody said, so I don't want to take too much of your time. You can never take too much of our time, Bill. Well, he. I'll I'll try to make it quickly. In this article I just read, uh, and he, the author's talking about Milch's dementia, and he said, well, would you like, you, do you go to a place like Deadwood? Would that help you clear your head? And David said, I think that is the chief blessing of art, the opportunity to organize one's behavior around a different reality. Then he said, it's a second chance. You pray to be equal to it. Mm. Mm. That, that, that's, I mean... You know, I talked about second chances. Yeah. yeah. Now, one of the points you make, and I found it a really interesting point in your book, that the character of, of E.B. Farnham is in some ways uh, reflects some of what Milch thinks of himself. And so you became, you became almost an extension of, of him within the show. Well, they've said, uh, well, I, if I heard what I was saying, I, I think people would say, that guy takes himself very seriously. I think sometimes authors, uh, their alter egos, those those characters in the novels and books. Uh, uh, but David is part Swearingen, the, bad, the tough guy, the vulgar mouth, and he's uh, tender at times when he writes the uh, parts for the women. And uh, he's funny. He's funny. And uh, my character just uh, kept kept surprising me, and and that's. But I do think a lot of it is is David, yeah, and some of his family or people. Mm. When you uh, when you talk about second chances, have you had a bigger second chance than your wife Sharon? Oh no, no. I bet I talked about it before. She, I couldn't even organize my little uh, schedule right now without her coordinating uh, the interviews and things. And uh, I couldn't get on a plane. Really. They invited us to Deadwood premiere, and I wasn't able to go because a lot's happening back here. But it's always more work for her. And I looked up a word, uxorious. Uh, did I say that before? Is too much... No. Uh, credit for one's spouse or wife, but maybe I could lighten it by saying she's very smart. I hope she doesn't leave me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the the book is, uh, in many ways, also a wonderful love story about you, too, and, and I love the stories. It's been an amazing ride for you through the years, but uh, to me, what, what made the book so powerful, and I, I, I told Sharon, I, man, I teared up at the end of it because it, it seems like as you settle in here to what you call your semi-retirement, we hope it's no more than that, but it, it seems like you've been able to find some peace of mind. Is that safe to say? Yeah, yeah, but what you say scared me. I don't have the stamina and energy. Did you just have Paul Dooley on your show? We did, yes. My God, do you think that doesn't make me humble? <laughs> about a character actor. And I know one time I said, who did I, who got the job? I auditioned for something. He said, and they said, oh, a guy named Paul Dooley. <laughs> and I said, well, you don't mind losing a job to someone <laughs> like that. I'd, I'd sure do segue, don't I? 
But uh, I really appreciate what you're saying. I, I'm sure I'm stealing somebody's words, but uh, if they read it, boy, you say compliments, and that throws people. You know? <laughs> uh, find out who the real hero is. Well, uh, we we by just reading the pages. We we love the book. I couldn't get enough of it. Uh, it's it's one of those books I know I'm going to reread again. And I I know you don't like getting those compliments, Bill, but it's an inspirational book. It's a powerful book, and man, I hope more and more people read it. Yes, I'm that guy. The rough and tumble life of a character I live, actor. I I thank you. Rough and tumble uh, life of a character. I live for compliments, but I try to hide it. You know, <laughs> you know well, there's a Jackie Gleason. Uh, self-deception thrives in the compost of flattery, and I I trust you. I love doing the show, but out in Hollywood, that's how they motivate you, you know. And so, but uh, uh, you made my day. Well, you made ours by being with us. Uh, we love the book. We wish you great success with this. Uh, just what about 10, 11 days until the Deadwood movie comes out. We look forward to seeing that as well. And uh, we wish you and Sharon nothing but health and happiness and hope to have you back again before too long. Oh, it's an honor to be on your show. And uh, I'm full of the S word sometimes. Take care, okay? <laughs> Thank you, Bill. That's William Sanderson. His book is... It's such a good read. You know, we, we read a lot of these books for the show, but uh, I don't know, something about this one. I think because he's so honest about the struggles, and as he admits, a lot of them he brought on himself through the years, but he's very open about it, and, and ultimately there's what seems to be a happy ending there, as we talked about the peace of mind that he's been looking for so long, thanks in large part to his wife, Sharon. Yeah, the book uh, you mentioned, you read it in one sitting, it, it I read it in two. It's just it was hard to put it down mm. once you started it. it uh, a lot of stories, but the the forward movement of those stories mm. is just inescapable. And he shared a few with us, but but save some of the best ones, especially some of those Elvis stories, his stories about Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> you want to read the book? I, we know you'll love it. It's called "Yes, I'm That Guy: The Rough and Tumble Life of a Character Actor" by William Sanderson. Our thanks to Bill. And thanks to Adam Savage as well for joining us. And thanks to you for being with us on this week's Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance and Pineland Farms Dairy. We'll see you next time.